Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why the U.S. is having a hard time testing everyone for the coronavirus with some help from Dr. Julia Shaletsky. We'll also answer a listener question about whether ketamine can help with depression and anxiety. And you'll learn about how an anonymous anime fan helped solve a 25-year-old math puzzle. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Why can't we just test everyone in the U.S. to see if they have COVID-19? We asked this question to Dr. Julia Shaletsky, and today you'll hear what she told us. Dr. Shaletsky is the executive director of the Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases, the Drug Discovery Center, and the Immunotherapy and Vaccine Research Institute at UC Berkeley. Here's her assessment of the coronavirus testing situation here in the U.S., in the end, it's all about regulation. Honestly, I think we've overregulated the testing um, in the U.S. It's just, I mean, we're we building um, testing capacity in Berkeley right now, and it's just, it's the problem is not technological. It's not even getting supplies, really. It's just because it's regulated as a clinical test for humans. It's a totally different ball game from the research testing we normally do, and it it's. I mean, everything is is codified and you have to use a certain mega model of machine. You have to use a certain batch of reagent, you know, and they don't allow you to swap anything out. Um, so that's what, why the reagent shortages are such a problem. It's not like we don't have enough reagents to do PCR or RNA extraction in this country. There's enough for a long time, but we don't have the very make and model of the one kit that is approved for that assay in this lab, right? And so if they run out of that and it's back ordered, then you just you just can't be testing anymore, although you have the whole infrastructure set up, right? And you could take another kit and swap it and do the same thing, but it's not allowed, right? Um, because then you have to go through this process called validation again, where you have several weeks, you have to um, basically demonstrate your assay still works the same way. You just swap the kit and you use a different manufacturer for whatever the buffer, you know, and then you have to demonstrate it still works the same way. You have to cross-validate in another lab that's certified, and then you can get going. So here you just wasted three or four weeks, you know. I mean, that, that's really why we are in this quag quagmire. It's like I explain it to people with the dishwasher analogy. It's like you, you have a process to clean your dishes, but the way normal people would do it and research would do it, everybody just runs the dishwasher, everybody does it the way they want, and in the end you have clean dishes mostly. But but the way it's regulated for clinical, um, you would have to already, you submit a lot of paperwork that outlines exactly what lot, lot and batch of dishwasher detergent you're using, which machine of dishwasher you're using, you know, what water you're using, and then if you dry off some, some wet spots, what towel brand and make a model of towel you're using and then that gets approved and then you can start washing your dishes and the minute you you run out of that brand of dishwashing detergent or you need to use a different brand of towel or a different dishwasher everything is gone like you have to validate again and submit the whole paperwork and somebody in the public health department and with regulatory fda normally has to approve it so that's why we are in this testing problem. It's that's what they mean by resources. It's not really that we can't make enough buffer. It's it's that everything is so codified that you have no way to easily swap things, even if you know they they should work exactly the same way, right? 
you know, it's good for peacetime. Everything is very codified and there's a low risk of swaps and, and mess ups. But now we have an actively emerging, fast spreading pandemic. Um, maybe we have to do this a bit differently, you know. I know this isn't exactly great news, but we wanted to at least shine a spotlight on a question that Americans seem to be asking very frequently these days. We're going to move on from talking about the coronavirus for the rest of this episode, but if you're interested in learning more, we'll be posting our full uncut interview with Dr. Shaletsky on a special Sunday episode of Curiosity Daily this weekend. Keep an eye on your preferred podcast app to find the episode, or visit curiositydaily.com for links to stream or download, along with our full set of show notes. We got a listener question on our studio line. And just so you know, we can still access your voicemails while we're working from home during the pandemic. So keep the calls coming. Here's today's question. Hi, my name's Brock from Utah. I was wondering about mental health. I was looking up online for treatments, and they have a new treatment in the University of Utah called ketamine infusion. And I was wondering, how is it that it would help depression and anxiety? And you guys are awesome and do a great podcast. Thank you so much. Great question, Brock. I know it sounds weird that a party drug like ketamine would be prescribed to treat anything. And yet, almost exactly a year ago, the FDA approved it as a medication for depression. There's a good reason, I promise. First, some background. Ketamine started its life in the 1960s as a surgical anesthetic because it has the ability to put people in a dissociative state that basically detaches them from any pain. That's really handy in the operating room, and it's still used that way today. But the drug is also commonly abused for the detached calm and distorted sights and sounds it produces. 2006 was when researchers began studying its use in treatment-resistant depression. When the results were successful, ketamine clinics for depression started popping up around the globe. That sounds illegal, but it isn't. Not technically. Ketamine has been an FDA-approved drug for decades, just as an anesthesia, not as an antidepressant. These clinics use it off-label, the same way doctors might prescribe a blood pressure medication for ADHD or a seizure medication for bipolar disorder. The FDA says that's okay. But it wasn't until March of 2019 that the FDA approved the first depression treatment based on ketamine. That treatment is a nasal spray that contains S-ketamine, which is one of the two types of ketamine molecules you'd find in the anesthetic version. So why ketamine for depression? Well, the typical pharmaceutical treatments for depression are designed to boost levels of a neurotransmitter called serotonin. These are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. But over the years, it's become clear that SSRIs are only helpful for about two-thirds of patients. So researchers set their sights on other neurotransmitters, like glutamate. Glutamate is super important for making and maintaining connections between brain cells that enable learning and memory. Chronic stress can deplete some of these connections in a particular area of the brain that can make it harder to deal with negative events. Research suggests that ketamine helps rebuild those connections by triggering glutamate production. It basically makes the brain more adaptable and ready to build new neural pathways, which can help people learn better ways to cope. Even more impressive, while SSRIs can take weeks or even months to take effect, ketamine can alleviate symptoms of depression in a matter of hours. Unfortunately, it doesn't last. A course of multiple doses typically wears off within months. 
That's why experts say it's best to use ketamine as one ingredient in a comprehensive treatment plan. By combining ketamine's brain-adapting benefits with psychotherapy to learn more productive attitudes and behaviors, patients might find real, lasting relief from their depression. Thanks for your question, Brock. If you have a question, you can email us at podcast at curiosity.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. An anonymous web forum poster helped solve a 25-year-old math puzzle, and I am so excited to share this story with you because it's nerdy on pretty much every level. Definitely something I can relate to. So you might have heard of a TV show called The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. Right, Ashley? No, Cody, I've never heard of that TV show in my life. Okay. What is it? Well, it's an anime series. That probably explains why you haven't heard of it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it's an anime series that involves time travel. So, of course, people like to argue about it on the internet. Because time travel. But instead of getting into a flame war, anonymous users who were discussing Haruhi on the website 4chan ended up making some significant headway on a puzzle that had vexed mathematicians for 25 years. The topic was pretty much what you would expect from an internet forum. Here's the hypothetical question they asked. Given that there are 14 episodes in the show's first season, how many total episodes would you have to watch if you wanted to watch all of them in every possible order? All right, so to figure this out, let's simplify the question and pretend there are just two episodes. In that case, there are just two different orders you could watch the episodes in. You could watch episode one, then episode two, or you could watch episode two, then episode one. Mathematicians call these different possible sequences permutations, and they're an active area of research. But the 4chan users weren't just talking about regular old permutations. They were talking about what mathematicians call super permutations. Super permutations combine all permutations into a single sequence. So for two episodes, the shortest super permutation is one, two, one. It contains every possible permutation. Mathematicians understood how to make these highly efficient super permutations with small sets of numbers. But the pattern they relied on broke down when they tried to make super permutations with more than five values. There was no good theory for figuring out, say, how many total episodes you'd have to watch in order to see every possible permutation of Haruhi. Amazingly, a 4chan user offered an answer to the question less than an hour after it was asked. According to that post, you'd have to watch at least... 93,884,313,611 total episodes. It wasn't a complete solution, but it gave a lower bound for the number of episodes you'd have to watch. The proof also applied to series with any number of episodes, not just 14. This happened all the way back in 2011, but the internet is a pretty big place. So the answer just kind of sat there until a couple years ago when science fiction novelist Greg Egan proved a new upper bound for the number of episodes required. That drew renewed attention to the problem, and in October 2018, three mathematicians confirmed the calculations in that seven-year-old post and offered a generalized version of the original answer in an academic paper. All 4chan users are anonymous, so the researchers couldn't give direct credit to the person who made the breakthrough. Instead, they took the unusual step of giving first authorship to, quote, anonymous 4chan poster, end quote. 
May all of our silly internet debates be this significant. Before we recap what we learned today, I just wanted to remind you to keep an eye on your podcast app for a special episode of Curiosity Daily this Sunday, featuring our full interview about vaccines and coronavirus with Dr. Julia Shaletsky. And now here's a sneak peek at what else you'll hear on Curiosity Daily next week. Next week, you'll learn about how your romantic attachment style affects your finances, the surprising reason why some amphibians glow, why laughter might really be the best medicine, how solar storms mess with whales, and more. All right, so now let's recap what we learned today. Well, I learned that it's not necessarily that we have a shortage of testing supplies. It's more that we have a shortage of approved testing supplies, and we can't just switch those out for other ones that might work just as well because they all need to be approved and regulated. But another thing that Dr. Shaletsky said that you could hear on the full uncut interview is that there actually might be a point where the testing just doesn't matter anymore. We can just assume that most people have COVID-19 and we just operate from there. But we haven't gotten there yet, so testing's still really important. Yeah, and that's not to say that we prefer that to be the case. Definitely not. By any means. And we also learned that ketamine, believe it or not, is actually an effective treatment for anxiety and depression. In the short term, you of course want to resolve other issues and use that as you recover, but uh, you know. But it helps you resolve those issues, so it's good. Sure does. Also, just got to give a quick shout out to all of our great listeners who've been leaving voicemails and also sending other listener questions. We got like a fantastic voicemail from Missouri. Big shout out over the weekend. We can't play every voicemail we get, obviously, but we've been having a lot of fun hearing from you. It's, it's really nice to like actually hear from you, you know? So thank you for that and keep it up. Definitely. And I learned that sometimes silly internet debates can lead to breakthroughs in science and mathematics. Like finding out how many episodes of an anime show you'd have to watch if you wanted to watch all of them in every possible order. Turns out the number is really, really, really large. Yeah, I really want to watch The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. I actually saw a clip from it in an anime convention a few years ago. And it was really funny. So I purchased the whole box set of the series to watch. But then, like, two years later, I hadn't watched it because I just hadn't made the time. So I ended up reselling it on, like, eBay or something. But I still want to watch it. I'll, I'll pull it up on a streaming service sometime. Also, I didn't learn this till after our episode earlier this week. Maya the Bee was an anime. Oh. Yeah, I watched it when I was, like, really little. I mean, it was, the whole series had been produced before I was even born, so it was all reruns. But, yeah, Maya the Bee actually was an anime. You just don't notice these things when you're four. Right. <laughs> What's your favorite anime, Ashley? Um, I like Cowboy Bebop. Also, I watched a lot of Digimon when I was in junior high. Ooh. I never watched Pokemon, but I watched a lot of Digimon. Good times. I have Pokemon artwork in my bathroom. Cool. (laughs) Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer and Grant Curran and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. With additional audio editing by Ashley Hamer. Have a great weekend and join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.